I want to talk about those locos for just a little bit. And I don't, I, I wish I had this illustration up there. If I get it up there, I'll, you know, I'll put it back up there for you. But I picked this up from Irvin Maxwell, and I don't know where he exactly got it from, but he made a neat comparison. And he, he compared the range of the desert locust. Now, underline the word desert. There are lots of, of locusts in the world today. And he, range, and he showed the range of the desert locusts that sweeps through the Middle East, down through Egypt, Saudi Arabia, picks off a little bit of Spain, gets in North Africa, if you got the picture of the Mediterranean in your mind. Then he pictures the, uh, the Muslim, the spread of the Muslim, uh, Arab Muslim. Underline the word Arab Muslim. Um, and, and, the, and the similar, uh, the semblance comparison is quite striking. So you have the, basically the desert locust uh, range is about where you see the Muslim, um, the Arab Muslim world, uh, so to speak. So that was, uh, that was very interesting. So this is a desert locust, as it says, it can eat its weight in crops. To us in America today, this doesn't seem like you can get uh, locusts out west. But with aerial sprays and pesticides, these things are easily held under control. But even today in the Middle East, they are feared. Um, in certain parts of the world, they don't have the ability to respond. And if you're a subsistence farmer, meaning that you are living and eating off of what you raise, and you see these things show up, they, they are really a, a scourge. Okay. They were commanded not to harm the grass or the earth or the tree or any green thing. Talked about that yesterday a little bit. Only those men who do not have the seal of God, I talked about that yesterday, in their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and not find it. They will desire to die, and death will escape them, will flee from them. And the shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads were crowns something like gold. Their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpion, and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men for five months, Revelation 9, verse 1 to 10. There's the range of the desert locusts, and here, if you can see that, good enough there, I'm sorry. Uh, and then there is the range of Islam. Isn't that interesting? I think it's very, very interesting. And I think you might even say that Islam today, of course, has really taken a chunk of Africa here. But you can see, uh, see how that's, that's uh, Arabic Islam. This is it's spread to 750 A.D. Um, why were the Crusades? I've got the Crusades thrown in here. And that's because there came a new, and I may have them a little bit out of place, there came a new element into the whole Muslim world. And that element was the uh, Turks who came out of the steeps 
um, of Russia, like a lot of barbarians did. I, I'm not trying to call anybody barbarian, but I'm talking about the barbarian tribes. And uh, they came and they became converted to Islam. I think I mentioned that yesterday. And they began to move in on the what we call today Turkey. And um, by 1100, you find something very different going on. And they became a real threat to the Byzantine Christian Empire of Eastern Rome. And uh, they basically woke up too late as to the terrible threat this was to all of Christendom and to Europe. The Arab Muslims were not that big of a threat or as much of a threat uh, as these guys were. But these guys, and so what you have is you have the Crusades. How many of you have ever heard of the Crusades? Um, if you remember President Bush, the second Bush, uh, got himself into a lot of trouble with the Arab world when he mentioned after 9-11 uh, something about the Crusades. And they just, they is still a very sensitive subject. And you talk about the Crusades, uh, it's not, not looked at very nice. Uh, and there's some reason for it. Among Roman Catholics, it was thought that a pious, notorious act was to go take a journey to some sacred place. Especially it was thought that a pilgrimage to the land that had been trod by the feet of the Savior of the world of that holy city that had witnessed his martyrdom was particular pious undertaking and one which secured for the pilgrim special favor and blessing of heaven. Um, the Saracen caliphs had for four centuries, that's the Arabs, for since, uh, had pursued an enlightened policy toward the pilgrims even encouraging pilgrimages as a source of revenue. But in the 11th century, the Turks, zealous followers of Islam, wrested from the caliphs almost all of their Asiatic possessions, the Middle East, basically. The Roman papacy was not long realizing the power had fallen into new hands. 3,000 pilgrims were insulted and persecuted in every way. The churches in Jerusalem were destroyed and turned into stables. Now, you can imagine that if it was merit to make a journey there, it would be a lot more meritorious to kick out the Muslims. And you get the, you get the picture, that's the, the point. The meritorious thing to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Sepulcher, much more, more it would be a pious act to rescue the sacred spot from the profanation of the infidels. This was the sentiment that had for two centuries or more stirred the Roman Catholic world to its profoundest depths and cast the population of Europe in wave after wave upon Asia. I don't have a lot of time to get into the Crusades, but just a little bit, perhaps. Here's the cause of the Crusades. Pope Urban II, the Council of Clermont. Pope Urban II, who was a, was a very good um, speech maker. He, he, he had powerful ability to move people called the Great Council of the Church in Italy to consider the appeal in 1095. Notice the date. It's almost 1100. But nothing was affected. Later in the same year, a new council was convened in Clermont, France, Pope Urban purposely fixing the place of the meeting among the warm-tempered Marshal Franks. Pope Urban II himself was one of the chief speakers. He was naturally eloquent. So the man, the cause, the occasion, all conspired to achieve one of the greatest triumphs of human oratory. 
Pope Urban II pictured the profanation of the places that made sacred the presence and the footsteps of the Son of God, quoting now him, when Jesus Christ summons you to his defense, claimed the eloquent pontiff, let no base affection detain you in your homes. Whoever will abandon his house or his father or his mother or his wife or his children or his inheritance for the sake of my name shall be recompensed a hundredfold. Possess and possess life eternal. End quote. Here the enthusiasm of the vast assembly burst through every restraint. With one voice they cried, I'm not a Frenchman, meaning it is the will of God, it is the will of God. Thousands immediately affixed the cross to their garments as a pledge of their sacred engagement to go forth and rescue the Holy Sepulchre. The 15th day of August of the following year, 1096, was set for the departure of the exposition, uh, expedition and the Crusades had begun. Um, it was Jesus who made a profound statement to the woman at the well. He said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, what? But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. John 4, 21 and 23. Jesus declared, no more holy mountains. If the world would just accept this, it would save the world right now a lot of turmoil. Um, the world is a powder keg in the Middle East. It's been all my life. It's been all your life. Uh, you got the Dome of the Rock sitting on the place where the Jews would like to build a third temple. And everybody watches each other with the closest watching. It's, um, it's really a terrible thing. It's a powder keg. And it wouldn't take much to set off uh, a huge mess. But that's because people still have this concept that and it's neat to go visit those things, but you're no more like Jesus to visit those than the best way to be like Jesus is being converted and have your heart changed. That's what really counts. Yes. Yeah. It's no more holy mountains. Um, the only way we worship the Father is in spirit and in truth. Yes, in back. Yes, good. That's very good. So as the Muslim, and all this doesn't happen at once. This is a process over time. The Muslim Turks uh, take the power from the Muslim Arabs. They begin imposing heart treat, harsh treatment on Catholic pilgrims. In response, the Pope calls for the Crusades. Uh, this is Christian History Magazine. Uh, Edward Gibbons, the great historian, called the Crusades savage fanaticism. Uh, that's probably a very good word for it. Um, the, this is a picture of when the Crusaders took over Jerusalem the first time. Ultimately, the Crusades ended in failure for the most part. But at first, they seemed to gain some advantage. And when they took over Jerusalem, they killed just about every man, woman, child they could find. And the streets of Jerusalem ran with blood. On the way, the Crusaders happened upon a Jewish community and the Jewish people ran to their synagogue and they slew every man, woman, and child in that community. That's the kind of thing that we are up against. I saw somebody's hand here. No? Yes, right over here. And what part, if any, did the Catholic papacy have in setting up the Muslim religion? Well, I, 
you're getting into the, a world that I don't know much about. So there's a lot of conspiracy stuff going on, and I, I don't know an answer to that. I do know what Bible prophecy says, and I do believe that God allows throughout history, God has allowed the enemies of His people to cancel each other out. And the true religion are those who are following the Scripture. It's not found in these holy hills and holy mountains and all of that kind of a thing. But these powers, the Muslims and the uh, Catholicism, Byzantine Christianity become mortal enemies. And uh, we'll see something very fascinating happen uh, with all of this. Uh, this is the ch last crusade. It's the children's crusade. Many people don't know about this. You're talking about unbelievable, savage fanaticism. Have you ever heard of the children's crusade? Uh, this, was, um, th this was a populist kind of a thing, and uh, there was a young man who seemed to be possessed with some kind of a spirit. His name was Stephen, 14 years old, and he says, well, the adults couldn't win the Holy Land back, so let's let the children do it. So he began to go everywhere raising up. He got support of uh, priests to raise up a great army of children. And they did, thousands of them, tens of thousands of them. The kids began to leave their parents, the parents pleading and weeping and saying, don't go, don't leave home. But no, they're going to win the fanaticism, basically. We're going to win the Holy Land back. And uh, they said, well, how are you going to get there? And Stephen said, well, the sea's going to dry up and we're going to walk through on dry land. Well, they got to the place where they needed to get across the water and the landed. I mean, the water didn't dry up, but a bunch of ships showed up, offered to take them over, and they were not heard from again. All became slaves of the Muslims, sold into slavery. One, pre one person escaped or two, and that's how we know what basically happened. Um, but you can think of the awfulness of that kind of thing. Anyway, back to the judgment on religious Rome, because I think that's what Islam was allowed to be uh, to do. And if I go back to that picture, by the way, and you look at the Muslim power that spread through the Middle East and North Africa and up to Spain, it's like a crescent moon. You know what the symbol of, a, of the Muslim power is? And it becomes like a block that keeps that apostate Christianity from continuing its, uh, its spread. So here we have July, 29, July 27, 1299, Islam strikes like a scorpion, not like a snake. The Ottoman Empire is, not, is just getting ready to start. Now, if you go uh, online or other places, you will find people will tell you that the Ottoman Empire started in 1299. Now, this date becomes important, becomes important to us and to Bible prophecy. And it says it started in 1299. You'll find others who will contest that and say, no, nobody contests July 27. Nobody contests that. What has been contested is 1299. Now, this date, July 27, 1299, was given by the historian Gibbons in his history of the Roman Empire. And... Um, but people have said, no, that date is really 1302. And that's the more popular date that you hear. Other date you will find is 1301. 
Why do they pick, what is, what is it about that July 27, what is it that happened that changed the course of history? And what happened is, because you got the Crusades going on, you got a lot of, the Dark Ages are in full-blown uh, uh, blossom, if that's the right word. It's not a good word. It wasn't a flower. The Dark Ages were not a flower. Uh, full-blown depths of despair, if you want to put it that way. So you got the Crusade, you got a lot of mess, you got the Turks and all of their little city-states are our little bailiwicks or whatever you want to call it, and they've kind of little by little divided up what is known today as Asia Minor. But there's no, there's no empire. But on 1299, there's a man by the name, I mentioned him yesterday, Osman, O-S-M-A-N, and he has his bailiwick or his little country or his little area right up next to the Byzantine Empire, not far from Constantinople. And, and the Byzantine Empire is getting weak, and he makes a move, and it's called the Battle, if I've said it right, of Bafurius. B-A-P-H-B-A-P-H-E-U-S. I don't know if I've said it right or not. B-A-P-H-E-U-S. And it's called, that's what the battle. And this is supposed to have taken place, according to Gibbon, on July 27, 1299. He won that battle. The, uh, the Turks won that battle and really shook them. From then on, it was downhill. And they used that as the establishment of the great Ottoman Empire, who later would become called the sick man of the East. But he's not sick to start with. Pretty powerful. And he... This grows into an empire. This guy becomes very, very powerful. Well, let's look at this date just a little bit. Let's look at the prophecy of the five months. This five months when this thing strikes like a scorpion. You have the prophetic year, prophetic year, prophetic month. How long? How do we know how many years or days are in a prophetic year, and how many are in a prophetic month? Well. The Bible, fortunately, gives that prophecy seven times in both Daniel and Revelation. It calls it three and a half times or three and a half years. It calls it 1,260 days. It calls it 42 months. So if you just do a little math, the Bible explains itself. Now, when I first started out, I used to tell everybody, oh, that's the Jewish year. Well, that's no such thing. I was just absolutely wrong. Sorry to say that. And I, and I, uh, because the Jewish year is run on a calendar, a lunar calendar, uh, if, if I had just studied the prophecy, I would have figured it out because the Bible's its own interpreter. So all you do is just do a little math, and I've done a little math here. Uh, 1260 divided by 42 months, 1260 days divided by 42 months, same prophecy gives you how many days, prophetic days in a month? 30. 1260 days divided by 3.5 years gives you how many days in a prophetic year? 360. So prophetic year is 360 days. Prophetic month is 30 days. So 5 times 30 equals 150 days or using the day for a year principle, which I'm not going to try to explain today because I think you know that, then I get how many years? I get 150 years. So if July 27, 1299 is the correct date, and I actually do believe that it is. 
despite what you may hear from some people on the internet and among the Adventist church. I explained yesterday why you see so many different varieties of this sometimes. Then we, that, 150, that becomes a very important point because there's another prophecy and the sixth woe that's going to get added to this. So the question is, where do we find a movement against religious Rome, Byzantine and papal, that fits this description? Uh, this is a very good description of the rise of the Ottoman Empire, which attacks religious Rome in two phases. Now that two-phase thing is important because in the first phase of this thing, it says it doesn't strike it, it hurts it, it makes it miserable, but it doesn't take its life. Even though it's right next door to Constantinople, which is the capital of the Byzantine religious empire, it doesn't overcome it. But it does make life miserable for 150 years. And uh, so it's a good description of really what happens here. So the question is, is when did the Ottoman Empire begin growing out of the Muslim uh, religion? If we know the date, then we can turn, determine the beginning of the five months. Well, it's like giving you gibbons um, here. Well, let's give a little bit more. This was also, the Ottoman Empire is also known as the Turkish Empire. Ottoman Turkey, or simply Turkey as it is today, was founded in 1299 by the Turks under Osman I in northwestern Antolio or Asia Minor or what today is known as Antolio, uh, Turkey. That's from the Encyclopedia Britannica. And uh, you, you can look on other places and they'll refer you, even I think you'll find that uh, Turkey itself looks at its beginning in 1299. So that's, a, that's not a date that can just be dismissed. The date historian gives, Gibbons gives, is July 27, 1299, which was the Battle of... Anybody want to try it? I think this PH is supposed to be like an F sound. Bifaeus, Bifaeus, Bifaeus. Anyway, uh, between Osman I and the Byzantine Emperor, and what is today known as Northwest Turkey. In more recent times, as I mentioned, the date's been challenged. Uh, let's look at this a little closer. So why, why is this date so important? Because in the sixth trumpet, there will be added to it another prophecy that is very precise. It's one of those precise prophecies you'll find. It's almost mysterious. I'm going to talk about that today before we're all done. So the four angels, here's the quote from Revelation 9.15. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third, there's that third symbolic third again, of mankind. Now I'm going to get into that a little deeper as I get into the sixth trumpet. But these two come together because if it strikes like a scorpion and you know the start of that, then it's only logical that when it switches from scorpion to snake that you've got a continuous prophecy. You understand what I'm saying? So the five months is like the start of this 300 and uh, the, the hour, the day, the month, and the year. Have I lost anybody? So two prophecies, time prophecies. One is the start and the other is the finish. And they flow together. Is that what they call, is that what 
160 years perhaps you write on the market. Yeah, but the five months and then is is the first part, and then the hour, the day, the month, and the year is the second part. And they're consecutive. So the start of the five months. Yeah, that's right. Okay, with me? Let's go ahead. Okay, I can't say this guy's name either. He's a, that's a Greek name. His name is George Pacmere. That's what I want to say. Or Pacmere's. And he lived, well, I'm telling you, let me tell you why I'm telling you about George Pacmere's. He lived in 1242 to 1310. He was a Byzantine philosopher, teacher. He learned in many fields and leading historian and scholar of his time. Now, Dr. Alberto Artreyer, Ph.D., comments on this date. And this date, um, people have been studying uh, George Pachtmeers, and they came up that the date was not 1299, but was 1301 or 1302. They still debate that quite a bit. Now, Dr. Alberto Artreyer comments that and this on, on this date, and this um, is what he has to say. He says it is evident that Pactomirs goes back to the year 1299, the date of the beginning of the book 10, to tell the story of the battle as Gibbons understood it time ago. The date July 27, 1299 fits better with all the earlier Ottoman sources, which makes prominent the year 1299 for the beginning of the Ottoman Empire with the adoption of Sogut as the capital of the new Turkish Empire and his first significant advances toward the land of unbelievers. Here's what Treyer is saying. He's saying everybody's saying that the Ottoman Empire gets a start in 1299, but then we come along and say the battle that really started it didn't actually happen until 1302. And so he says there's something not right here. He says it's really more clear that that battle, that Gibbons was right. That's what he's really saying. Um, I got that from Dr. Treyer on March 11, 2016. That's how fresh this is. Um, the perplexity of the French horse, uh, and, and I'm going to introduce you to a French historian, and you ask me, well, what are you doing that for? Because he is a student of this Greek George Pactomirs. In other words, he studies Pactomir and, and he's well known for the studies over these dates in this whole issue here. I've given you all this reference. It's all in French and I'm not even going to try. All right. This, uh, this, if this is a little hard to follow, raise your hand. Dr. Treyer is... Uh, first language is Spanish. does pretty good with the English too, but sometimes you can see a little bit of that, and I'll try to explain it. This letter, uh, well, first of all, let me say that the French historian, as he was studying all this, and he had accepted the date of 1302, this French historian, as he was studying Pactomirs, said something's not right here, and he became perplexed. And why was he perplexed? Because there is the bishop. The bishop is a Byzantine bishop of Constantinople. 
And the bishop and the emperor are obviously connected. And the bishop is going to write a letter to the emperor complaining that the emperor is not there. Okay, you got that kind of that picture? These historians, this is this techie stuff, I understand that. But it's important. So the letter of the bishop, and I'm not sure I can say his name, it's A-T-H-A-N-A-S-E. Somebody want to try that? Athenese, okay, that's pretty good. Athenese. To the emperor, and I'm not even going to try that Greek. Okay, but that's the emperor. Is extremely important because it is contemporaneous to the events, the events of the battle. The battle becomes important. And seems to contradict, the letter seems to contradict the chronology of events offered by modern historians, leaving in perplexity the French historian Laurent. Now, if you get on the internet, you'll find people just making fun of Adventists, they're making fun of Ellen White, they're saying all this is just uh, a bunch of hocus pocus and we don't have it right. Uh, Those people are going to have to go back into the shadows. Uh, This thing is being put, uh, put to rest. I mean, their arguments are really being put to rest and they're getting really very... Uh, very good original sources here. So why did it leave? Well, let's go ahead. Let's listen to the explanation. One, the letter from the bishop regrets the absence from the capital of the emperor during most all the time of the first patriarch, and that that are are his, uh, his time period there, which was 1289 to 1293. Now, obviously, I didn't get... But there's two, there's two of this... What do they call it? Patriarchate. It's like a, it's like uh, right now we, we're in a, we had our session. So we're in that five-year session. So this is his five-year time period. And that's what it's talking about there. I shouldn't say five years. I don't know how many years it is, but it's several years. It's like four. Number two. It looks like five. All right. Anyway, you got the gist of it. Okay. Now, we're going to talk about his second one. Let's go back to number two, the observation. The letter, letter of the bishop written in Constantinople and, quote, placed at the head of the ancient collection, comma, and no doubt contemporaneous with what constitutes Vaticanus, uh, comma, end quote, requires to date it before the second patriarch, our, our time period, of the bishop. Because during the second time period of the bishop, since June 1303, ah, the emperor uh, doesn't leave the capital. Under this context, Laurent dates the letter between April 1299 and October 1300. So it's basically saying you can't have it both ways. Because that letter uh, is dated uh, in a way that says, ah, you you can't take that letter and make it in 1302. That's what he's saying. So he continues, the letter of the bishop requires the emperor to pay attention to the public calamities, especially to the evils brought out by the Turkish invasion. Well, when was the Turkish invasion? It was the battle of B-A-P-H-E-U-S. 
And this is why the French historian is perplexed. The perplexity of the French historian, Laurent, is that the letter fits better with what happened after the battle, which in Laurent's view, as generally assumed by modern historians today, would have taken place in 1302. But, quote, the situation of Asia Minor did not start to be degraded before the victory of the Muslim Turks at Beth, uh, B-A-P-H-E-U-S. And the mention of the presence of the emperor in Thessalonica complicates more the matter because of return to Constantinople before 1302. Dr. Treyer's conclusion is, in my view, this letter makes sense if we place the battle of Bafius in July 27, 1299, whose consequence required the immediate return of the emperor to Constantinople. That felt complicated, I know, but I hope you follow the gist. Yes, in the back. The next two slides I cannot share with you because there's ongoing research and he gave me permission to share this and he and some other people are doing some more research that is even more devastating to 1302. I left them on there, but I put hashtags on them and so I want to honor that and I'm just going to flip through them. There they are. Okay. All this new information, it's just that recent. Uh, these guys really have gone back. They've gotten original sources. They have really piled in on this thing, and I'm just really thrilled uh, with what they're doing. All this new information is, in fact, Dr. Treya wrote me, and he says, you use July 27, 1299. Use it with... with uh, Security, that's my word. You use it with confidence. I think that's the word he used. Yes. Um there there there's some books being worked on and but it's in collusion with several scholars that are working on this, not just him. No, my guess is they'll probably publish a book at some point once they get all their stuff uh, nailed down. Mm -hmm. I'm going to. Thank you. All this new information is supporting Gibbon's date for the Battle of Bethias on July 27, 1299. It undoes the modern interpretation of 301, or 1301 and 1302. That's what we're saying. All right, now let's go back uh, and uh, well, I think we've nailed that down pretty good, so I don't want to go. But I want to go 150 years later to 1449 because that's when something is going to change dramatically and we're going to see that uh, happen here. And 1448, 14 when? 48. The, the new... Emperor of the Byzantine Christian Empire asked permission from the Turkish Sultan if he would give him permission to take the throne of the Christian Empire. Now tell me who's controlling who now? Christians are not in control anymore. And he gets the permission, guess when? 
1449. So he takes the throne with permission from the Muslim sultan. So now you have the Christian powers, if you please, listen to this carefully, who have now come under the control of the Muslim powers, Turkish Muslim powers. And that's what I've just, that just, is just what I've told you. And there's a picture, by the way, of the last uh, Eastern Roman emperor, and he's not going to last too long because in four, in four, 53, something happens. The power of Islam is going to change in the next trumpet. It will change from the sting of a scorpion to the deadly bite of a snake. The fact that he took the throne only with permission tells you he's in charge, and now we watch this happen. This, um, a little sidetrack here. I picked this out of a library a long time ago, but it shows a, it shows a Muslim Turkish soldier, and look how he's fighting. The Bible says the sting was in their what? And one of the, uh, uh, if you think about horses, what is, where are the most famous horses in the world come from? They're Arabian horses. These guys were expert horsemen. Said that they would, they would move in on their enemy, frontal assault, cavalry, and then with expertise, they would turn their horses like they were fleeing and then, of course, their enemies lower their shields, and about that time they come right over the back end of their horses anyway. I just thought it was kind of an interesting sidetrack, kind of something interesting. All right, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to switch to uh, part two, if you don't mind. Some of this I've covered, so just wanting to pick this up. All right. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river, what? Now, I've heard a lot of explanations on that, but I want to give you one that I think I like better. I, I like consistency in Bible prophecy. I like this because we're dealing with the enemies of God's people. You're dealing with Babylon and Rome and the two phases of Rome and all of that. It's all picturing together and it's all flowing together. And before we get done, you're going to see how it just flows right into modern uh, times that we are. Where do you find the river Euphrates again in the book of Revelation? In the, you find it in the seven last plagues, but it's in a picture of preparation for the seven last plagues. You follow what I'm saying? So it's like a postscript in the seven last plagues and says this is how you get to the battle of Armageddon. And, and uh, then in chapter 17 you have the woman and she's also pictured as a city and she's sitting on what? Sitting on water. Well, what water does Babylon sit on? Euphrates, and in, the, and, and in the sixth plague, the Euphrates dries up and the woman and the city falls. Remember that scenario? Okay, I'm not, I'm not giving it to you, but I'm just giving you the, the basis of it. Yes? Okay, I think it's actually being used here symbolically. You, that's an argument that I wouldn't say is a bad argument uh, for sure, and you could certainly add that. But if you look at the symbolic... Euphrates dries up, Babylon falls, and God overthrows his enemies in the battle of Armageddon. 
So Babylon here is apostate Christianity. And these four angels are being launched against Babylon to hold back its forces or to punish it for what it is doing. That's Jay Gallimore's explanation. And uh, so it says... It says, release the four angels bound in the river Euphrates. In other words, the river doesn't dry up, but there's still a judgment on Babylon. Okay, so the four angels who have been prepared, here we go, for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now this prophecy has also been made fun of quite a bit. And one of the arguments is, that this is a punctilian in time. In other words, it's not a spread out prophecy. It is punctilier, meaning it's all talking about one spot. You follow what I'm saying? And they, the reason they do that, some of them say that, is because of the article, the. We went to Dr. Tarsi Lee, who teaches for Hebrew University, and he actually has a specialty in this whole area of this uh, article, the way these articles are used in the Greek. And we went and asked him for his opinion. Is that punctiliar or can it be like the prophecy that you find in Daniel where he talks about you know, the spread of the 2300 days or, this, or the 70 years prophecy? And he came back and he showed the illustrations that it can be just like the prophecy in Daniel. You could use it punctilier, but it can also be used clearly to be a prophecy that is laid out over time. And that's the way Adventists have always looked at it, and I think the Adventists have been right on it. After all, we've been right about a whole lot of things. If you think what we're teaching today, what's amazing is that we've been teaching that for 150 years and it's coming to pass in front of people's very eyes. So... Uh, he reassured us that you're not off base as far as the Greek is concerned and looking at it as a, a time period there. So that's the first thing I want to do. But let's look at, um, I'm, I'm coming back to that here in just a minute. And thus I saw the horses in the vision and those that sat on them had brace, breastplates of fiery red, high synth blue, sulfur, yellow, and the heads of the horses were like heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and what? Now that's a change. You haven't seen that before. And it's interesting that when they talk about the rise of the Ottoman Empire, and they call it Turkey, they also call it uh, gunpowder Turkey. And that's because gunpowder had been discovered and Constantinople, the great Christian capital, had withstood for 150 years all the Turkish assaults, uh, onslaughts against it. But now that they had discovered gunpowder, the Turks did something very interesting. They had these brass cannon. They didn't have iron cannon. They had brass cannon. And they, and they were huge and they were heavy and they couldn't really drag them over the ground. So what they did is melted them down into small pieces. And they hauled them up in front of the walls of Constantinople. And then they melted them down again and recast them, you're right, and blew down those ancient walls with those cannon and gunpowder. 
And in fact, I, what's that? Didn't they already no. It and just no, no. Th this is happening in, in 1453. So Constantinople falls in 1453. And uh, the, the, new, the new Roman uh, Byzantine emperor took over with permission in 1449. And right after that, now you see the attack. The Turks weren't going to stop until they got Constantinople until they wiped out the Byzantine Empire. That's where they were going. And uh, so they made that attack in 1453. It's a big date. If you, if you watch the news, you'll find that Greece and Turkey, even though they're both part of NATO, they don't like each other at all. And that's a powder keg. Uh, they, they, have, uh, they will dispute over two rocks out there in the uh, Aegean Sea. Um, they, in fact, NATO rushes to try to keep them, those guys from fighting, and I don't get into all the history of that. You can get into it yourself. But anyway, I just think it's interesting that it came out fire and brimstone, which is sulfur, you know what uh, gunpowder is made out of. But they basically blew down the walls, and here we go. So by these three, it's a typo, plagues, I can look, I've got to have my wife go over this. Uh, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths, for the power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like what? Before their tails were like... Yeah. So you see the deadly effect, the deadly change in the second phase, having heads and with them they do harm, Revelation 9, 18. But notice this, this is one sometimes it's often skipped over, but God gives you the reason why He's bringing judgments on religious Babylon, religious Rome. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons. By the way, the New Testament ties these two together, the worship of demons and the worship of idols. Yep. should not worship demons and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. Now I say this kindly, but Byzantine, Greek Orthodox will tell you they're not idol worshipers, but they have their pictures and they will kiss those things and bow down to those things. And the Roman Catholic Church has idols all in there. They'll tell you the same thing. We don't worship these idols. We're just, these are just replicas, but yet they're bowing down to them. They're kissing them and so forth and so on. This is in the Christian church that has the Ten Commandments. And God doesn't like it any better in the Christian church than He liked it with ancient Israel. And the result is to withdraw the protection of God. Yes? <laughs> I'm sorry? It sounds like in a way the Muslims were used by God to check on themselves. You are just absolutely hearing what I'm saying. Exactly right. What God has done is just like He did when Israel went into apostasy. What did He do? He withdrew His hand and He allowed their enemies to come in and put a check. So you've got Christianity both in Byzantine and in papal power and these people have gone into apostasy. They've left the plain scriptures, and so what does God do? He withdraws His protecting power. Putin is also the time of the Reformation, so the distraction. 
Yeah, yeah, hang on to that. You can steal some of my thunder. No, I, that's fine. <laughs> but you're right on. You're right on. And we're going to see that in just, uh, just a few minutes. Yes. Well, uh, what, you, what you see, I think, evil angels are in the business of... Uh, remember when I told you this thing that there would be that the judgment on apostate Christianity would arise from four different areas? And that's what I'm covering. It's going to arise from the Muslims. There are a lot of good, decent Muslim people. Uh, I don't agree with her theology. I don't agree with her Koran. But I don't, that's not a place to get into that. Um, and, but that doesn't mean that I think their movement is heaven sent. They believe it's heaven sent. I say that. I, I'm trying to be respectful. We always should be. I don't believe their movement is heaven sent. I believe that movement was allowed to check apostate Christianity. But I don't think apostate Christianity is coming from heaven either. So there's, there's, there's several different movements in the sixth trumpet that's checking all of this. And that's what we're seeing here. Okay, let's see if we can go on here. Uh, and sixth trumpet. So 1449, Islam controls much of the Christian empire, and now you have this thing striking like a snake. Constantinople falls. You have uh, the cannon. Now let's look at this date here. This is July 27, 1299. That's the start of the 150 years. 1449 is the end of it and the start of the 391 years and 15 days. Here's what, one hour equals 15 days, one day equals one year, one month equals 30 years, and one year equals 360 years. When you add all those together, you've got 391 years and 15 days. That's a very precise prophecy. Now somebody say, well, how did you get one hour equal 15 days? Well, a day, uh, how many hours are in a day? 24. So if you, um, uh, one hour then would be 1 24th of a year. And 1 24th of a year is 15 days because it's half a month. Okay, you lose anybody on that? All right. Uh, I want you, I'm, coming to, I'm coming to that. I want, to look, I want you to look at some of the timelines here that are very, very interesting. Remember where we're at. You just saw those dates, these dates right in here. Look at that 1449 date. Now watch this. This is John Wycliffe. The whole of Christianity is just about in darkness except for the Waldenses and some of these folk. 1377. That's, that's right in the middle, not in the middle, but right toward the end of this first 150 years. 1377, you got John Wycliffe. Does anybody remember what John Wycliffe is often called? The morning star of the Reformation. What's the morning star tell you? The day is coming. But, uh, and I don't have time to tell the story of this great man. Uh, they hated him so much they dug up his bones 40 years after he died and burnt them. Um, they actually had a mock trial. They put his bones out there and they, they tried him. Had a trial. I mean, this is bizarre. But it just shows what the devil does. Uh, number two, early 1400s. I should have had the actual date on this. You have Huss and Jerome. So you can see this is following in. Then you got 1449. Islam controls uh, much of the Christian empire. And then 1453, Islam is striking like snake. Constantinople falls. There's Huss, story of Huss. Um, for sake of time, I'm not going to tell the story of Huss or Jerome. You know that story. I'm assuming. I want you to get the picture here. 
And then in 1492, what happens? You know, the Rhine. 1492. Yeah, exactly right. So uh, America is discovered in modern times. I know all the arguments. It was discovered before blah, blah, blah. But for modern history, it's 1492. America is discovered. Look what's happening here. God is getting ready to do something in human history. Now, uh, let's go on Revelation 10. We're still moving through the sixth trumpet. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from where? Is this good news? Yeah, this is good news. From heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. I believe this mighty angel is represents Jesus, but I believe it represents the movement of the Protestant Reformation. And the reason I believe that is because without the Protestant Reformation, there's no final movement in earth's history, and there's no remnant. The remnant is part of that Reformation. So the rise of the Reformation is in when? America is discovered in 1492, and the rise of the Reformation is... I know it's kind of hot in here. Can you open that door? Maybe we can get a little cool air in here. It just feels hot to me in here for some reason. Um, oh, no. Maybe that door will stay up and give us a little fresh air. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. Bless you. Okay, so you can just see the dates kind of and everything that's happened. So you see those dates down through here. Uh, powerful things are beginning to move here. And of course, we know the story of, of, of the Reformation. I'm not going to get into that for sake of time. Um, by the way, this is another picture that I picked up. And this is the dress of these um, Turkish soldiers. You can see their dress and the colors that were mentioned there. I just thought that was kind of a sidetrack, interesting point. But now let's go back to the Protestant Reformation for a second and the point that you just made. So you got the Protestant Reformation coming up. Charles V, who is a, quote, Holy Roman Emperor, he is as angry as all get out about the Protestant Reformation. So he calls a big meeting in Spires. Martin Luther is not there. Worms has already happened. Spires comes in and the German princes come in representing their, their states. And they are, I've been in that, I've been in that cathedral in Europe. It's very interesting because it's where many of the, uh, of the rulers of, of Europe were crowned by the Pope. And before you get to the altar, there's another huge platform with a huge crown up above it hanging from the ceiling. And it's underneath that crown that the Pope is crowning the kings of Europe. That's where it took place. So it was a symbol of papal power and also of, of the royal power. So there, there they are at Spires and Charles V, in no uncertain terms, you can read it in history, tells them that they are going to surrender the heretics, the Protestants, in their territory. And if they do not surrender them, he will raise an army and he will devastate their states. 
And you can just, it's pillage. It's horrible what they, and he meant every bit of it. I'll lay it to waste. So it took quite a bit of courage for these guys. And he meant it, and he had the ability to do it. Charles V had the ability to do it from Spain. They stood up. You remember, and that's where the word Protestant comes from. It was the protest of the princes. And they told Charles V he didn't have any right to rule over man's conscience. And they were not going to surrender. Yes? Where did it come in where um, the one king was forced to kill all the people and then the king had was drawn like and had to walk behind the pope? Yeah, that was back in the Dark Ages. Uh, yeah. But this is a picture now of the Protestant Reformation, and this is a pivotal moment. This moment, in those few minutes, the world is getting ready to change because God is moving. And Charles V is angry, and he says, okay, I'm, I'm coming back, and this time I'm coming with a sword. He went and raised a huge army up. On his way, in simple terms, on his way to Germany, he got word that Spain had been invaded by the Turkish Muslims. So the army that he was going to go and, and lay waste to the Reformation lands, he turned around and had to use that army to fight the Turks. And while he's fighting the Turks, the Reformation is growing like wildfire because of the great prophecies of Daniel and Revelation that have been poured on righteousness by faith and everybody's standing up and saying the Pope is the Antichrist after all, according to the Bible. And the Protestant Reformation then becomes unstoppable. No Protestant Reformation, no United States of America. Get it clear. I, I know we're quote now quoted as the new Catholic nation, but the truth is We've been taken over from the inside. This, is, this never was made, never, it, it, it's, it grows out of the Protestant Reformation, pure and simple. And the Constitution of the United States is a representation of Protestant principles. So this is, uh, this is Islam Reconsidered by Kenneth Oster, an exposition, university book, Hicksville, New York, Exposition Press, 1979. By the way, he's not alone many... Uh, scholars will tell you this. The Ottoman pressure on the Habsburg, that's Charles V and his relatives, was an important factor in the consolidation of the forces of the Reformation and their final recognition, observes a typical modern scholar. In the 16th and 17th centuries, support and encouragement for Protestants and Calvinists were one of the fundamental principles of the Ottoman policy. There would have been no Protestantism had there been no Turk. And there would not have been a United States of America if there had been no Protestantism and no Turk. Uh, most Americans don't realize those roots. Yes? Was this the same time when Turks were spending Vienna? Yes, I think, you're, I, th I think you're correct. You can look at all the technical stuff, but anyway, that's the basics. Now, conclusion. Muslims are used as a judgment on apostate Christianity. Two, as the Christian Reformation grew, the Muslims decreased and fell under the power of Christian nations. Oh, don't miss that. So, w when you've got 
the apostasy raging, the power of the Turks come up. When the Reformation comes on the scene and begins to grow in power, the power of the Ottoman Empire. Now, in the time of the end, as apostasy once again begins to grip Christianity, the Lord appears to allow the Muslim stings and bites to again plague the Christian world. Hello, 9-11. And an Iraqi war. And one that we're fighting. And you cut off one head and you get seven dragons. Called Issus or Desh or whatever it is they call What's going on? As this nation turns into apostasy, God starts withdrawing His hand and this nation begins to feel, and Western Europe begins to feel. Is Western Europe and the United States are great bastions of Bible-believing Protestants. But now as they're embracing the Dark Ages again, this is what is happening. Okay. Sure. Exactly right. You've heard about it this week while you've been up here. So here, here we go. Okay. So there's those dates again. I wanted to, I've got a few more minutes. You still with me? I wanted to get into this. Um, somebody's going to ask me about the seven thunders. and The truth is, I don't know. Uh, I know some people have done some study on it. I'm suspicious of something good, but I'm not going to get into it because I don't really know right now. And I need to think about that a little bit more. All right. I wanted to get into, okay, this angel again. Because I want to get into those, that final date before you go today. Can we get that done? Yes. Okay, and there's nobody following me here, so if I can impose on you just a few minutes. My wife told me that because she usually follows me in here. Uh, <laughs> and the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on his hand lifted up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever and created all things in it, and the earth and all things in it, and the sea and all things in it, that there should be, I underline this part, delay no longer. That's, a, that's not a bad translation. Delay no longer. Flashback to Daniel 8, 13 and 14. Here's the angel. How what? How long? In other words, how long is the delay going to be? How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices? The word sacrifice, by the way, is supplied. I don't have time to get into that. And the transgression of the desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host we trampled underfoot. Remember, that was the vertical attack towards that. There was a horizontal attack and the vertical attack towards the prince and the sanctuary. And he, and he said to me, under 2,300 days, to then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Well, this is telling you that this great long time prophecy that has delayed God's response is about to come to an end. That there should be delay no longer. Now, Elma makes a very interesting uh, statement in support of this. She said, there are no more time prophecies to be fulfilled after this. And I keep seeing people popping up trying to Oh, this is another fulfillment of this, that, and the other. The Bible is very clear. Delay no longer. The end of the 2300 days was the last of the time prophecies. Everything else fits in before that, including the end of Daniel. But I, and I'm not going to take time to get in there uh, right now. 
Okay, and you know Revelation 14, 7, where God is called, to, we are called to worship Him who made heaven and earth. And you notice that in this also there's a reference to the creation. And you cannot really reference the creation without the Sabbath. And when you switch into the Holy of Holies, as this is getting ready to do, Sabbath becomes important. All right. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book that is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and earth. It's going to be a worldwide movement. And I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said, Take it and eat it, and it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I would eaten it, my stomach became what? Bitter. Now we know that, and you can look in all of, of um, oh, well, I guess we asked the question. What is the little book? What is that little book? And I think the Bible answers itself. Daniel is a small book compared to the book of Revelation, but they both go together. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and do what? Seal the book until the time of the end. The book is how in the angel's hand. It's opened in the angel's hand. So, and many shall run to and fro, knowledge shall be increased. So the book is open. The prophecy is that this is the only book in the Bible that's predicted that will be opened when? In the time of the end. And the time of the end starts with 1844. 1798, some people say. doesn't matter. It's pretty close. Out of the Reformation comes a bitter book experience. You can look at this... Whatever this is takes place out of the Protestant Reformation. And when you look at the Protestant Reformation, the only experience where you've got a bitter book experience, a honey bitter book experience, is the 1844 thing. And it was a big deal in the Protestant Reformation. It was part of the Third Great Awakening. Some people say the Second Great Awakening. As you know, the Holy Spirit was moving mightily in this country in the middle 1700s, the late 1700s, early 1800s, and this thing came. The, you, there were no Seventh-day Adventists in 1844. Everybody that was there in, were, were Protestants of one stripe or another. So that, that experience came out of there. Okay, let's look at the data. This is an angel from heaven. It's a good force. His description is like that of Jesus. His foot is on the sea and the land. To become, this has become a worldwide influence. He has a little book open in his hand. John's told to eat the little book. When he does, it is as sweet as honey in his mouth and bitter in his stomach. And so I just told you where you're going to find that experience and why. This takes place under the sixth trumpet just before the final events of earth's history under the seventh trumpet. And the little book would have a close relation to the big book, and that book is the book of Daniel. All right, I want to I go back to that, um, that experience. The focus of this bitter experience will be on the heavenly sanctuary, the time of the end, because the Bible says unto 2,300 days, then shall the what be cleansed? So the bitter experience is going to have to be over that. Now, you know the story of the Adventist pioneers. Here is a man by the name of Josiah Litch. We may have to shut that door if the noise gets out, out there. I'm going to impose a few more minutes. Can you, are, shall I just start tomorrow? You okay? I wanted to get to, the, to that, that prophecy. I wanted to keep it all in the same thing. All right. This man right here, Josiah Litch, these guys were good students of Bible prophecy. And Josiah Litch, 
this is 1830, uh, about 1831 or two, uh, uh, William Miller begins to preach. 1833, you have the falling of the stars. That's pouring gasoline on the Adventist movement. Uh, and, but this really pours gasoline on it. And Josiah Litch, these guys are studying the prophecies. And Josiah Litch studied this prophecy, and he came to the same conclusions of what's what I've told you. And he said the conclusion of this prophecy is, is August 11, 1840, and he was brave enough to put it in print. And of course, people made fun, laughed at him. They thought there was a lot of deists in those days, and they thought the Bible was a musty old book that had no relevance. You ever heard of that before? <coughs> well, the San Francisco Times, I believe it was, reported that on August 11, 1840, that the antagonist of the Muslim Sultan had been delivered an ultimatum at the request of the Ottoman Empire's Sultan by Britain. France was now out of this. I got into this history. It's a very fascinating history. Britain, Prussia, Russia, and Austria, all Christian powers. And that ultimatum was delivered on August 11, 1840. Now you have just the opposite happen. You have the sultan appealing to Britain and the Christian powers of Europe to help him because the pasha or the ruler, the Muslim ruler of Egypt was eating his lunch, meaning he was beating the daylights out of him. And uh, there's a very interesting story there. Um, and I want to tell you a little bit of that story because this date, August 11, 1840, has also been made fun of. They have laughed. They said, this is, not, this is not true. It didn't happen until August 16, not August 11. Well, I want to tell you the story, if you don't mind. I've got it in here somewhere. Here we go. This is Muhammad, Muhammad Ali Pasha. Pasha's like he's the Muslim ruler of Egypt. He's known today as the founder of modern Egypt. They say you'll find his name plastered all over everywhere over there. He reigned from May 17, 1805 to 1848. Notice the dates. This is toward the end of his reign. This is where he was born. He was born in Greece. He was part of the Ottoman Empire, but he was an Albanian. And it made it possible for, and he made it possible for the Ottoman Sultan, the emperor, to win a decisive battle in Greek, in Greece. Muhammad Ali Pasha wanted the Sultan to give him Syria in return. The Sultan refused. So Muhammad Ali is quoted as saying this, I am well aware where the Ottoman Empire is heading by the day. On its ruins, I will build a vast kingdom. He was pretty smart dude, so to speak. He was bright, he was aggressive, and he knew weakness when he saw it, and he, uh, they all were afraid that he was actually going to become the new sultan of the Turkish Empire. And if he had of, it might have been bad news for Europe. This guy was smart. So he went ahead and attacked the sultan, his own sultan, and he won. And when they got done with that, the sultan didn't have any army left. 
And so Britain and the European powers are looking at this guy and they're saying, hey, if we don't do something, this guy will take over the Ottoman Empire. This will not be good. So the Sultan now is in, uh, the Sultan is in uh, contact with, uh, with Russia and Prussia. Mostly Britain is a leader in all of this. And so Britain, these guys have a meeting and they decide that they're, in fact, the whole intrigue about this meeting and how Britain finally got the permission to send the ultimatum. And by the way, they sent the British fleet down there to enforce it. Is, is very fascinating. But they got the ultimatum and they signed it and they sent it to the Sultan. But the Sultan is not down in Egypt. He's up in Turkey. So he's got to get that ultimatum down there, right? So how does he do it? Well, he sends it by ship. He gets his ambassador, his representative, and he puts these guys on the ship with the British uh, European ultimatum, and they arrive in the harbor of Egypt on August 11, 1840. Now, the reason the critics come in, they say, oh, yes, but there was no official deliverance of that until the 16th. We know that. And the reason there wasn't, quote, an official deliverance is because there was a thing called the plague. And there was a quarantine. And they weren't going to let you off the ship to make sure that you didn't have the plague. Somebody said amen. That's yeah. good. <laughs> so, but that doesn't mean that the, I got the history. I, 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 this is really interesting. That doesn't mean this, that the Pasha... The Egyptian Pasha didn't know what was in that ultimatum. And he must have gotten it off the ship somehow. Because when they finally let him have the official audience, he had already made up his mind. He didn't even give him a chance to speak. He flew into a rage, told him how crazy they were and stupid they were and all those, whatever they were. That's my English. But he, he just flew into a rage and told him the whole, the whole bit. So we know he already knew. And the reason he already knew is because they delivered it. They came into the port on August 11, 1840. We did some research on this, and I don't have it all up here. So some people said, well, you know, they, they kind of said, well, how, do you, how can you prove that source? We know now the very boat, we can name the boat that brought the information from England, and England and their sources were using August 11, 1840, and they're the ones that released the news to the Americas. Of course, there's, uh, they brought the official thing. There's also the, oh, what do you call it, the telegraph, all those kinds of things that were going on. So it's coming now. We, that date can be established very powerfully. The prophecy is sure. And Ellen White is right after all. Hello, critics. <laughs> like I've always said, the prophets are never wrong. You just have to wait sometimes, and God just waits. That's the critics to test our faith. And, uh, but we have good reason today to be able to establish both of these dates and to see that that prophecy comes to pass. That's enough for today. We back into it tomorrow. Let's uh, bow our heads, and we'll try to pick up where we left off. Father in heaven, thank you again for your love and your mercy. And I pray that you'll be with us now as we continue to trust your word in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.